Uh, today's reading comes from 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 to 22. It's on page 860 in your pew Bibles. <clears throat> but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish." They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are, in, are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the ways of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Okay, well let us come before the Lord in prayer as we uh, consider this passage. 
with a tense kind of tone, uh, let us pray. Lord, thank you for this day that we have uh, to think carefully about your word and we pray that you would help us to heed it uh, and that it would be guiding the way that we live and the way that we think uh, as we seek to serve you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Well, I wonder if you've ever found yourself uh, being deceived by someone where you've been at home enjoying a meal and the telephone rings and somebody on the end of the line's trying to deceive you with the promise of the world or at least some cheap airline tickets uh, if you part company with your cash. I don't know if you ever find it annoying to fight off those kinds of people uh, who are trying to deceive you and take your money, but it seems worse though, doesn't it, when uh, the people doing the deceiving perhaps have a church background and they've come to hoodwink you. Well, listen to an example that I've got from a, a character called Neil Postman who's written about the tele-evangelists uh, and you're left wondering what they're really trying to sell. Are they selling the gospel or something else? Uh, we're told about a lady called Reverend Terry. Uh, she had one of those haircuts where the coiffure uh, can't be must. You couldn't muss a hair up. You could only break it, apparently, because it was that set in uh, ha hairspray. She was energetic in her preaching, and her audiences were always uh, laughing. Uh, when she preached, though, this is what she did. Reverend Terry tries to persuade her audiences, as well as those who are at home, because she's on the TV, to change their ways by finding Jesus. And to help her do this, she offers a prosperity campaign kit, which appears to have a dual purpose. As it brings one nearer to Jesus, it also provides advice on how to increase one's bank balance. This makes her followers extremely happy and confirms their predisposition to believe that the prosperity that prosperity is the true aim of religion. Well, perhaps God disagrees, says Postman, because as of writing, Reverend Terry has been obliged to declare bankruptcy and temporarily halt her ministration. So although she's uh, preaching it, uh, she's not actually living it. If God's all about prosperity, why has she gone bankrupt? But how seriously can we take these televangelists anyway? This particular character says what we get on the TV often is just a dumbed-down version of um, what God's Word should really be teaching us. He says, what's preached on television is not anything like the Sermon on the Mount. Religious programs are filled with good cheer. They celebrate affluence. Their featured players become celebrities. And th though their messages are trivial, the shows have high ratings. Or he says, or rather, because their messages are trivial, the shows have high ratings. Whenever I've ever tuned in, it always seems to have been about capitalism and people trying to get money from donors so they can uh, pay for someone to have a bigger private jet to travel the world, things like that. 
Well, I don't know if you've ever been duped into contributing to those ministries. I've been asked by um, particular people to help contribute and I've, I've objected and uh, they've started to rethink whether they should as well. Well, today the topic is false teachers and we need to watch out for false teachers. In the book of 1, 2 Peter, Peter's just spoken about how the, the scriptures are the authority and we've got to listen to the scriptures. He said, men spoke in the past as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and he encourages the people of his time and also us to do well to pay attention and to listen to the word of those prophets because those words find their fulfilment in Jesus. Today, the Old Testament is once again raised. Peter makes the point that there were false prophets in the Old Testament times, but there's also nothing new under the sun. There's false teachers in his time and also in ours. We'll pick it up from verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. The prophets were there to actually reveal God's word to the people, to bring God's word to bear on their lives. But the people were reminded in Deuteronomy that at times someone might be a false prophet who's, who's raised up, who would encourage them to worship and serve other gods. And the way they could tell whether a prophet was a true one or not was if what the prophet said came true. You might be able to remember back to the time of King Ahab. He was a wicked king of Israel. He hadn't long put to death a righteous man called Naboth because he wanted his vineyard. Ahab listened to his wife Jezebel and conspired to get Naboth's vineyard, which he did. And then he decided to go and wage war against some of the kings of, the kings of Syria. And so he inquired of his prophets, about 400 of them. And they gave him the good news. Oh yes, go and, go and take on the king of Syria. You'll be able to defeat it. But he didn't want to inquire of a prophet called Micaiah, if I've pronounced that right. Ahab didn't like that particular prophet because he always told God's truth. And so Ahab, when he heard from Micaiah, that he was going to actually be defeated by the Syrians, he threw him in prison. But it turned out that that prophecy did come true. We read that a certain man drew his bow at random and struck Ahab with an arrow between the scale armour and the breastplate. And so Ahab died in battle and didn't live to tell the tale. Well, what that prophet said was true. Peter's point is that there were false prophets in the past and nothing's new. There will be false teachers in the present. But why is that such a problem, you might wonder? Why is it a problem to have false teachers? Well, in verse 1, we're told they secretly introduce destructive heresies, which is wrong teaching, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They're bringing their teaching in a, in a sneaky way. They're secret about it. Cartoons are always intriguing to watch, aren't they? When you see the cartoon with the sheep dressed up in wolf's clothing, it's, it's always some sh sort of wolf with his sheepskin on and he's ready to eat some poor unsuspecting little sheep. But those wolves are easy to spot, aren't they? But in real life, things are a bit different. Uh, false teachings brought in secretly, the the, the wolves 
uh, in sheep's clothing, don't have little sort of shirts on them saying, yes, sprung, I'm one of the wolves, uh, you better turf me out. We have to find out who they are by what they say and what they do. But what was the false teacher's message in 1, 2 Peter? Well, we find out that these people deny the Lord who bought them. This uh, idea of Jesus buying someone brings us back to that idea of a ransom where somebody's been held hostage and in order to release them, uh, to, to buy back their freedom, a ransom price is paid. Well, these people have denied the Lord who's ransomed them. Well, how is it that they're denying the Lord? Well, we don't know a lot about how they do it. We just know that they've started to deny the Lord and that's had an impact on the people and the church around them. Did they simply stop believing in Jesus or did they show by their ungodly actions and their behaviour that they've actually forsaken the Lord? We don't really know. Either way, their teaching is having an impact and it's not actually building the church up. Instead, it's actually tearing the church apart and that's what bad teaching will do. It's destructive to God's church and the trouble is that people would actually follow these false teachers. Verse 2 says, Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Normal people, normal Christians like you and I, uh, got overwhelmed by the false teachers and they started to wander off, follow their teaching and start to live shamefully. And they brought Christianity a bad name. And that's something that can happen, isn't it? If people take on the name of Christ and then start living in shameful ways, it gives Christianity a bad name. If you can remember back to the uh, cricketer Hansi Cronier, he was professed to be a Christian. He was the captain of South Africa and he even was the poster boy for some of the Bible Society's publications and Bibles. You could give a kid's Bible with Hansi Cronier on it. But unfortunately Hansi got caught up in gambling with cricket match fixing because he was trying to make a bit more money. Now, I understand that uh, Hansi Cronier did get caught and he was very sorry about what he'd done. And he repented, as I understand it also, which is the right thing to do when someone makes a mistake. But we can't avoid the fact, though, can we, that uh, how we live has an impact on how we carry the gospel in the world. We can be people who bring the way of truth into disrepute. And that's what the false teachers were doing and leading these other people to do as well. Peter makes the point that what drives these false teachers is really money. Uh, in verse 3 it says, In their greed these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up, but they wouldn't get away with it forever. We're told their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. The point there is that God knows. God knows everything. He knows what they're doing and there will be a day set for them to be judged. They might be getting away with it for a while, but they won't get away with it forever. False teaching is a reality and we ought to be aware of it and alert to it even within this church here. At the moment, our church enjoys a time where the eldership is united. It's united in the gospel and in the truth of God's word. 
and the men of the eldership love God's word. And that's an important thing to maintain and, and keep hold of. It's also the policy of uh, the elders to make sure that whoever leads a ministry within this church, that they will first be tested, such as a Bible study group leader. And the reason is so that the church here can maintain what God wants for his church, that we can guard against teaching that runs counter to God's word. But not every church does that. In fact, in some places, there are groups which begin and they become what might be described as renegade groups where they do not put themselves as accountable to the leadership in the church. And in those circumstances, at times, false teaching can creep in. Each of us has a duty to test not only what I'm saying or what Scott says when we preach out the front, we have to test it against God's word, which is the plumb line. But if we think something is heretical or if there's some teaching that crops up in Bible study groups, which is really against uh, the spirit of what God's word is teaching, we've also got a duty to bring that information to the eldership as well. So that the eldership, in its accountability to the presbytery, can look into what's being taught within this church and hopefully sort out any false teaching. And the session would do that not to be heavy-handed, but because it's keen to obey God. It's keen to, for this church to be the one that God wants it to be. Well, God knows how to rescue and how to judge. That's clear from the next couple of verses. I've said earlier that the, the false teachers are getting away with their rottenness for a while, but they're not going to get away with it forever. forever. And we see that from three clear illustrations from the Old Testament. In the first place, we see that not even rebellious angels get away with it. <clears throat> Let's have a drink before we read this. In verse 4 we read, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Well, that's the first point he's making. He might be referring to Genesis chapter 6, where we see that the sons of God take the daughters of men, any of them whom they choose. And God's displeased with this kind of action. They might have had great harems. It's hard to understand exactly what's going on there. Either way, God's displeased and the consequent is there is the flood that's brought on the world. Peter's saying that these false teachers aren't going to get away with it because not even angels get away with being rebellious. Secondly, God judged the rebellious people of the ancient world whilst he still rescued some. Verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. We see that the ungodliness of that time, uh, not only does God know how to create and sustain a wonderful world, the flood shows that God knows how to judge the world as well. And the third point is that God judged the rebellious people of Sodom and Gomorrah but he rescued Lot. Verse 6, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, 
Peter now comes to his conclusion in verse 9. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. In verse 10, he then directs his attention to the false teachers once again. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. The point here is that God doesn't let uh, rebellion go unchecked. He shows us by these examples that he knows how to judge. Even in verse 9, we have a present tense of that judgment. He says, the Lord knows how to hold down righteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. These people are not getting away with it even now, and yet there is still a day of judgment to come. The point is that God knows how to deal with sin, and he will deal with it. Occasionally, people want to joke about uh, putting the fear of God into somebody. They think using expression like, you know, we'll put the fear of God into the kids, uh, that's somehow comedy or something to be laughed at, something to be flippant about. But a reminder of the reality that God is the judge of the world is something that people ought to fear. At times we see nice pictures of pussycats up in a tree and quotes like God is love, but very seldom do we see pictures saying it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so people ought to have a right fear of the holy God who will be an, un, an impartial judge, particularly if they don't have trust in the Saviour, the Lord Jesus. In this world of political correctness, I've heard even scripture teachers say things like, well, we can't talk to kids about being, God being a judge at all. But the thing that we've got to remember is it's not our message. We don't have liberty to change this message. This is the word of God that we're dealing with. Our responsibility is to pass that message on in a clear and trustworthy way. And so we need to be clear about God's will. For God's word makes it clear that if people deny the Lord Jesus, there's no assurance that's given from God's word that all will be well between them and God. In fact, now is the time, we're told that God's being patient, allowing people to have time to repent and turn back to get right with God. Now's the time to sort things out between the judge before that day. And the reality is that God does know how to rescue. That's the other theme that came through those verses. We've seen that he could rescue Noah and his family, Lot and his family, although unfortunately Lot's wife turned back and became a pillar of salt, we're told. The point is that God has done uh, something even before we were born to bring about our salvation. Long ago, before we were born, he's acted that we might enjoy life with him. His son, our Lord Jesus, is the one who bought us. He's the one who paid the penalty and the ransom for our sins. And God's word promises us that we can have new life with him if we put our trust in Jesus. <clears throat> That's not some news that the false teachers wanted to hold on to. These false teachers... Um, peddled a different kind of message. They promised much, but they delivered little. And in the next few verses from 10 through to 22, we can't help but notice that they are bad characters. And we've got to be aware 
of people like that. Let's have a look at some of their characteristics. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings, which are the angels. Yet even angels, though they are stronger and more powerful, don't bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. The false teachers are at home shooting their mouths off against uh, God's angels, showing their arrogance that the angels aren't inclined to pronounce judgment that, that belongs to God alone. These men blaspheme in matters they don't understand. In verse 13, they'll be paid back with harm for the harm they've done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. Their blots and blemishes revelling in their pleasures while they feast with you. The idea that they're carousing in broad daylight is that they're engaging in drunken, uh, dreadful behaviour even before the sun's gone near. Verse 14, we're told, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed and a cursed brood. With eyes full of adultery. This is literally with eyes that are full of desire for an adulteress or a mistress. That's all they have eyes for. They're looking out just for somebody to have sex with. And sexual impropriety and greed characterise these false teachers. It seems they've seduced to sexual sin those who are described as unstable, perhaps people who are thinking about becoming Christians or new Christians, as opposed to those people who are firmly established in the faith. And furthermore, they're even compared to uh, the false prophet in the past, Balaam, who did not want to obey God, uh, and was corrected by a donkey, which is a fascinating story to read. Well, they promise freedom, but it only leads to slavery. They're described as people who promise much, deliver little. They're like springs without water. Can you imagine going on a walk and looking at the green grass of a spring when you're thirsty and getting there to take a drink, only to find that there's no water left in it and you're disappointed? They're mist driven by a storm. The mists come over, but they don't produce any rain. They just have a dark sky amongst them. Through their words and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they've enticed people to follow them. Somehow they've used uh, sexual licentiousness as a bait to lure people. Uh, And sex does sell, doesn't it? You mean, you've only got to see those shows. Aussie World, I think, used to have an ad on TV years ago where... I don't know what a pretty girl's got to do with selling oxy welders or, or socket sets, but um, yeah, anything from football to, to Aussie world welders, uh, sex seems to sell. And these people have picked up on that kind of bait, perhaps giving the impression that uh, freedom, sexual freedom is okay and they're beyond self-control or restraint. Verse 19 says, They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. In the end, there's just a new kind of slavery that they have, which is to more and more wickedness. And the target of people that they're aiming for, uh, it doesn't look like they're aiming for the steady stable, but those who are, who are just moving perhaps out of um, paganism. In verse 20, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they are at the beginning. 
they're, they're targeting people who perhaps are just looking into Christianity. And these people seem to get entangled in what the false teachers are saying and they're led astray. Now, at one level, we shouldn't be surprised if people do fall away who don't stand the test of time as Christians because Jesus has already warned us about that in the parable of the sowers. Uh, the word, the gospel was sown amongst all different kinds of soils. People represent the soils. But there was only one soil that produced a crop, 30, 60 or 100 times what was sown. The other ones fell short of that. And yet at the same time, it is surprising and it's sad when people don't continue the race or the journey as Christians. Well, friends, this part of the Bible is pretty helpful for us because it helps us to think a bit about the characteristics of the kind of people that are going to lead us astray. We don't see uh, the wolves like they are in the cartoons, dressed up with a sheepskin on them, ready to devour the unsuspecting sheep. They do things secretly. And so we have to trust God's word to guide us as we look out and see who are the false teachers. Just as a hiker might trust his compass to stay on the right kind of bearing even in the dark or in conditions of overgrowth. On a recent trip to Swan's Crossing, I had the job of navigating our family to a waterfall destination. I came prepared for the trip though. I made sure that my map was, had a waterproof coating over the top so that if it rained I wouldn't end up with one map in somebody's hands walking that way and the other part of the map in someone's hands going that way and no map to guide us. And I took my faithful Swiss compass and I managed to find the trail that we should have been on to get to that cascade walk. But the path was overgrown and so I took a bearing to try to head on it with our compass and guide us in the right direction. And there was no real solid sign on the path of where our friends had gone before us. And soon I found myself under pressure from my darling wife to turn back because surely this couldn't be the right way. But I trusted my bearing, I trusted the compass and I pressed on on the journey, even with girls screaming from leech attacks behind me. I pressed on. And it was a good moment when David spotted the friends up ahead and said, there's people. And we made it to that wonderful cascade destination after all. Once even got there, they didn't give up either. Well, the Bible is like our compass. We can't always know exactly what the wolves in sheep clothing look like. We've got to trust what these sort of passages tell us about their characteristics. We can at times be impressed by the outward demeanour and the confidence and the so-called wisdom of certain people, but we've got to test them against God's word. Do you know, a few years ago I was actually invited to go to a particular meeting because somebody said a Christian recommended it. I was invited by a colleague at school and I went out of courtesy. Partly I wanted to invite him to a Christian meeting. I thought, well, I'd better go to his first. It was called Network 21. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But that's just a front badge name for a group called Amway. Has anybody heard of that? <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't know that either at the time. Well, I went to the meeting, but I listened to the tape later. And the meeting wasn't much fun, as I rejected their offers and they didn't think much of me. When I got home, I listened to the tape from this so-called Christian guy called Pat Masudi. And you know what he said on this tape? He said, your teenagers don't want your love, they want your money. 
and Network 21's a way to give them some money. I heard the same guy speak at a so-called Christian conference, Youth Alive in Sydney. He stood out the front and said, give to this ministry and if you don't have any money, reach into the person's pocket next to you and pull out their wallet and give what's in their wallet to this ministry. The last thing I heard from that guy was that he was actually put out of whatever ministry he was involved in on account of sexual infidelity. Was he a wolf in sheep's clothing? Well, I think he probably was. Was. I can't ever recall hearing a message from that guy that spoke about salvation from sin that's found through trusting in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, to the glory of God alone that's known from the scriptures alone. I could never ever hear a message about salvation from that guy. The only thing I heard from him was about how your teenagers don't love you, they just want your money. They don't want your love. Well, the topics that have come out of 1 Peter today seem to line up with some of the things that that guy seemed to be on about. Persuasive words, greed and sexual licence seem to line up pretty well with his life. And so that's why I say we've got to watch out for people who profess to be Christians but turn out to be sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing. The challenge for us is not to get swept up in their nonsense. We've got to continue to apply what God's word says and let it be the compass of our lives so that we don't end up on the wrong path. It's got to be our guide. Even if the path have, has overgrowth, we've got to continue letting it be the thing that guides us in where we ought to be going as God's people. Let us pray that God will help us to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that does guide us to see how people are keen to lead us astray. Lord, we thank you for your word that it does teach us about Jesus who has ransomed us, who's paid the penalty for our sin, that we might enjoy your forgiveness and life with you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to remain on that straight path with continuing with Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. We thank you that Judgment Day is not a problem because he's taken our sin upon himself on our behalf. And so we do thank you for uh, providing a way for us to get right with you. Lord, we pray as a church you would help us to be people who do test what is taught against what your word teaches, that we might be a church that continues to hold your truth and to love it. And we pray for your help to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.